we've read a lot. I've actually, yeah, we actually do read them properly. We re- when we read the books on Book Club, we properly read them. Every line. Well, every line of every book. Yeah, I watched your review your, your, the, from the other day. I, I found that fascinating, uh, watching your process um, going through the first couple of chapters. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, right, so. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is, you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is, tell everyone about Book Club. Hello and welcome to another episode of IRC Book Club. This is the fifth in the series in which we have talked about Selling to the C-Suite by Nick A.C. Reed and Stephen J. Bistrit, comma, Ed. Comma Ed, that's right. Yes, that's what it says. So, hi, Nick. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on today to talk about your book. I can see it there in the background in your extensive and very clearly admirable library. Well, it's a library, that's for sure. Um, um, I couldn't claim that I've read every book there, but they're always good for reference. Everyone says that that comes on the show, don't they? Yeah, I've read all mine on my show. <laughs> have you? Yeah. I've got a few that I've not, actually, because I, I have a tendency to buy books in advance of when I'm going to read them. Cool. So, Nick, why don't you give us an introduction to you with, by now, at the point at which our listeners are listening to this show, we've done four shows talking about your book. So they kind of know the book. It's sometimes perhaps a good idea to just get a little bit more of a knowledge about you, the author, what you're all about what you're doing with the world right now. Thank you. Um, look, um, career in sales. Uh, grew up uh, cutting my teeth on the streets of, uh, of Melbourne in Australia. Um, got into uh, sales management, um, got into consulting, joined Ernst & Young, led their revenue growth practice uh, for, a, for a time and um, was part of um, Siebel's Outsourced Consulting. Um, before they got bought by Oracle uh, for helping organizations take their software and implement it properly. And that led to a lot of skills training, a lot of analysis. And I guess along that journey, I became fascinated by the need for research. Um, I saw that there wasn't a lot of hard research there. Um, in one of your um, podcasts, you mentioned Neil Rackham and, uh, and you know his contributions. Um, a lot of respect for Neil, a lot of respect for anybody that does real research instead of plucking ideas out of their butt. And um, there's too many books that are like that. I think you've probably seen a few. Um, And, uh, you know, when it came to how to sell to the C-suite, there was, there've been previous books of that type. And a lot of them were written from the point of view of people who'd been sales managers or successful salespeople, and they were recounting how they did it. And if it worked for them, it'll work for you. And I thought there was something fundamentally wrong with that premise um, and uh, felt that it would be helpful if uh, we could go actually to the executives and find out what they were looking for and and what they reward and what they punish in terms of behavior. Fortunately, along the way, there were other studies being done. Steve Bistritz, my co-author in this, was uh, was running one of those for a company called Target Marketing Systems, which created the TAS sales training methodology, which disappeared inside. Uh, Altify and now it's disappeared even more inside Upland with the, the most recent acquisition of Altify. Um, so it's great now as a software pack, but not a lot of, of training and consulting around it, which I think is a shame. I think the world's lost something quite important there. Um, but uh, Steve was doing that sort of research, and uh, and so we we buddied up and uh, and extended the research outside of North America, which is where he was. Uh, took it uh, took it to other parts. You noted um, that there's some uh, reference to China. Uh, in yep. there, I find that fascinating. Can talk more about that later as to why we included that and why it's relevant today, if that's of interest. But uh, yeah, we uh, we put the book together over some time. And what was interesting was we were about to publish, and the chief financial um, officer of Morgan Stanley um, said, "If you publish now, um, we're about to go from a boom market to a bust market." This is 2007. He said, "Everything that you've written might be invalid. How do you know?" Uh, so he cautioned that we should just wait and resample after uh, the bust that he said was coming that everybody else thought was a joke. And of course, in 2008, we had the global financial crisis. Yes, so we, we resampled, yeah, before publishing and found out that it, what was true before was still true in, in, in the bust cycle. So we felt pretty, um, pretty good that we had something quite solid that people could bet the farm on um, in this. And so writing it was a challenge. So it wasn't a dry treatise. Um, I hope we did a good job. Yeah, 
I think you did. Mike and I, I've got to say, sometimes when we do book club, some of the books have been hard work, haven't they, Mike? Yeah, I mean, let's get it clear. This book, I've used this word a few times, is dense. You've got a proper, and I'm not knocking that, you've got to concentrate about what you're you're reading, really. There's a lot of stuff in it. Because you're saying a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, do you know what it is for me, Nicky? It's something that I, I found very frustrating, both as a salesperson, as a business person, as, and, and particularly as an employer of salespeople uh, ourselves, is over the years I've realised, you know, you read a lot of these books, and like you say, so much of what does constitute sales training is anecdotal rather than based on empirical evidence. And I think that it's a deeper issue, which is that academia looks down on its nose at selling. It is something that I found. I found it when I was a student myself. And actually, if you looked at the guys, I, my alumni, if you, if you looked at that group and that class, about 65% of them went into sales in the end. Yeah. Yet, if you'd mentioned to a tutor thought of going into sales, they'd have just scoffed. Um, and I find how, in most business courses, it's so, yeah. it's so derided. How, how can they teach it? Um, you know, they're all theoreticians. None of them have carried a bag. None of them have had a quota. Um, you know, they, they feel that it's safe to teach sales uh, like it's an extension of marketing, but all of their marketing knowledge is mostly retail and wholesale, mass marketing. Um, so their ability to actually speak about the nuances of business-to-business enterprise selling is non-existent, and that's why they, um, you know, treat it with disdain because they don't quite know how to get their hands around it. Um, and uh, and I think that having worked for a number of universities in a, a guest lecturing type of role and sort of yeah. really puzzled this out with faculty. Um, they, uh, they, they're all sort of, you know, in alignment. Oh yes, that sounds like a great idea. Let's put a proposal together. Um, but it never goes anywhere. And I don't know whether that's just their head in the sand, but as you said, the 65% ratio that you mentioned, I think that's a little bit low. I, I think most people today will end up in some type of sales or influencing uh, role where those relationships yeah. and persuasion skills are absolutely critical. And I think that too many people think selling is just communication skills and there's not much more to it. And of course, we know that at every stage of the sales cycle, there are very specific techniques and skills that um, that help people move things forward, that if they're lacking, deals stall, customers buy from competitors and you, you lose traction. So I think that especially when an economy is facing potential downturn in its sine wave cycles, we're overdue for one now, um, these sorts of skills um, become absolutely critical. Hey, but you know the other thing that companies do is that when times get tough, the first thing they cut is advertising and training. Yep. You know, and the companies that seem to emerge from any downturn stronger are the ones that double down on investing in that. So they retain their good talent. Um, they stop the um, the post-recession, um, you know, jettison of, of, of talent that usually happens because people are so, uh, you know, uh, burned out by working for, for companies through a recession that they look for the, the next job to jump to as soon as it's over. So companies can retain their talent and uh, protect their brand and grow their market during a recession uh, instead of following the accountant's uh, sort of knee-jerk reaction of cutting costs. You, you've got to grow the top line. You can't just cut the bottom line. And that's that's selling. Yeah, I mean, what we found back in 2008 last time was that leading up to 2008, companies had been on a recruitment bender is the mm. only way we mm. can you can look at it. And com- particularly some of the big enterprise vendors, Oracle, IBM, et al., they just recruited anybody and anything did, uh, yeah. literally and then what you find is those same anybody and any things come back on the market because companies don't need them but then what you also find is actually that they're, they're very difficult recruitment markets for companies because the good guys like you say stay exactly where they are they do yeah. now can i get into asking you some specifics about the book actually rather than you two waffling on pontificating about, about, yeah, exactly. uh, about market recruitment market economics so let's be clear i really like this book and i suggest people should buy it i'm not just saying that because you're on the show i do think that and if i didn't i would clearly have told you if you've listened to any of the other shows and and we're going to go through some stuff here that i really did like but i'm going to start with something that worries me a little bit about it 
which is I think that the, the book's dense and it requires a, a, a rare mix of intelligence for people to be forthright and have courage to actually do it. In all the people that you've worked with, Nick, and all the people that I've interviewed more specifically, I think that to get somebody to have the skills to carry out what's in this book is going to be quite difficult, don't you think? Because you that's want a really, it. really good guy to do this. That, that's No, that's why we wrote it. It's not to celebrate how people are doing things. It's to set a warning call out to say, if you don't start doing these things, um, you will um, come a cropper um, should the economy ever turn. And of course, every 10 years, the book becomes very relevant. Um, so I, I do agree that it's dense, but it is dense because it is based on real research about what really works. And there's no way of sugarcoating it. There's no way of doing that doing that lightly. Um, does it need somebody to be very intelligent? Um, I, I would have I, said so, wouldn't you? Well, I think that if people follow the directions that are in there, because it, it was written in many ways to say, do this, then do that, you get that result, input in, input out. Um, we have a training course that, that sort of teaches people how to do that and coaching and everything. This is not to spruik that, but you know, there was a recognition that people need more help than just reading a book to put the pieces in place. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that if somebody was honest with themselves and said, do I do all of these things? And if I did, you know, if I did even half of them well, or even average, you know, would, yes. would I, would I, would I do better? The answer is probably going to be yes. And so we do expect that, Salespeople who want to succeed um, and and really you know knock their number and crack their nuts yeah. every year are, are going to do it. But you know the, what? The, you, you guys said this on one of your on one of your past programs. Um, there, there's an appalling lack of courage and courage is the word. That's what I was. I know I'm yeah, interrupting you. Right. That is the word. Courage is the word. And there's a chapter about. I don't. I'm paraphrasing this horribly actually, and probably not correctly. But in one, in, in part of the book, you're talking about people belonging in the C-suite and, and, you know, communicated in that way. And actually, I think, you know, my experience, people, are people going to have enough courage to do it? Are they going to have enough courage to reach out to the C-suite? Are they going to have enough courage to believe that they have an opinion that's worthy enough to sell into the C-suite? Well, you're getting into values and you're getting into self-belief there. And uh, I think that we could, we could attach to courage curiosity. Uh, there's an appalling lack of curiosity with salespeople actually wanting to know what makes their customers tick and trying to understand how their business works so that they can have the inspiration. Um, there's there's too many organizations that say, don't you worry about that. You're just the the hunter. You go out and beat the bushes and scare out the tigers. We've got all these professional services guys will have the clever conversations. And of course, what you're doing there is bottlenecking your revenue. Um, and, and, you know, I see that the salespeople that really do well say, I'm not going to wait for a ProServe guy to come along. I'm going to master not only my own products, um, but also the customer's industry and be able to have those conversations myself. Why would I want to give that glory away? Um, mm -hmm. but, but there's too many people whose corporate process sort of takes the, I, I guess it just takes the ingenuity. Um, the creativity, out of, out of, yeah. 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 Exactly. Well, the, uh, I, uh, and I've mentioned this before on the show, I read a book on the way back from um, a party earlier on in the year as I was driving along in the car on audio uh, called Blitz Scaling, which was by Reid Hoffman and someone else. And they talk about the, the, the quest for extremely rapid growth in companies and extremely rapid recruitment. And I think the challenge of selling to the C-suite is it's completely antithetic to the concept of Blitz Scaling. Because in a blitz-scaled business, it's about having 40 SDRs, 40 uh, professional services pre-sales guys, and it's lit it's about the complete tailorization of the customer acquisition process so that no one individual part actually has that much expertise. Yeah. And you know, actually you know, it's it's front loaded via marketing and automation in order to get enough opportunities into the pipeline that we don't care actually if we lose a few because we've just got that many will scale anyway. It's it's all about the, the numbers game. As as a as a profession, uh, this, let's call it a profession. Most yeah. people it's, it's not a profession because there's no professional degrees, but I think most people who you know put on a blouse or a tie every morning will sort of say that they're they're professionals, right? Um, even though we don't have degrees in sales, notwithstanding you know APS and other people's you know fine attempts to create something that fits in with the training frameworks. But 
as a profession, we, we hit an inflection point around about 1995, which was when the CRM companies were on the rise. And yeah. what I believe we have seen is organizations thinking, well, it's a bit like ERP, isn't it? Or it's a bit, you know, CRM. If we can process with software, if we can processize it, you know, if that's the word, um, and, and turn it into a production line, um, then we should be able to scale that infinitely. And that all sounds great uh, to the technicians and to the accountants, but you can't you can't do that with human behavior and you can't do that with the face-to-face -face interactions. And I think what's happened is all the lemmings have run off the cliff together because they've thought that that's a catch-all answer for every type of sale, maybe in a call center. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know, but you know, I think that there are certain stratas of the sales profession where it absolutely doesn't work, but the absence of any thought leadership in that space is causing everybody to do it the same way. And I don't, I don't yeah. think it works. This, this you can't scale goal. trust. You can't. You can't. It's it's a personal person to person thing, or or organization to organization. But that that's built on the, the interactions that the people have, and I think that we've been trying to, I guess, gimmick sales with technology a little too much uh, as a profession, and and I think that um, we are kind of losing something um, along the way, um, which is the, you know, you said on one of your, 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 your podcasts about there's too many snowflakes, um, in, uh, in the <laughs> sales. And, uh, yeah, of course. And, and, and I think that, I think that you're right. I think organizations are trying to do too much. You, you were lamenting the fact that salespeople interview potential hirers to say, you know, what's your lead gen engine look like? Otherwise I won't come and work for you if it's not good enough. And, yeah. you know, I, I think that that's anathema to a true salesperson who'd been doing their own shadow marketing and, you know, just doing their own stuff to fill their own pipeline instead of um, expecting someone else to do it for them. So it comes back to values, doesn't it? Are you self-sufficient? Are you a self-starter? Um, I know that there's people who say, yeah, but, you know, selling is a big team effort and it's part of a whole corporate machine and they all have to play their role. But, you know, if, if you're going to if you're really going to grow sales, you've got to be hungry. And the other thing that I think companies do is um, they mess up their compensation too much, don't they, by giving people uh, a lack of appetite. I agree, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Go on, Mike. I was going to say, page 145. Doesn't look like you've got your book in front of you, so I'll remind you what's on it. Uh, page 145, <laughs> I think, is an absolute beauty. And the title is Structuring Meetings with the Executive. Oh, you get in the book. So it's, it's, it's Structuring Meetings with the Executive. And for those people who are listening, there's actually a pie chart that, that suggests the amount of time you should spend on each of the four components in the meeting. Right. And it says, section one, refer to your initial telephone call, and then it breaks it down. I've got to say, I think that if a salesperson followed that and did that for an hour in a meeting over and over again, I think that's a brilliant structure for a sales process. That And the book is full of gems like that, I think, actually. And is that based on research, that then, Nick? Yes, it is. So there was uh, quite a few thousand salespeople that we uh, we sort of watched what they were doing, and then we tracked what happened as a result of those calls. So a lot, a lot of what we did was longitudinal analysis of, of activity to outcome um, to see, well, what actually does move the needle from stage of sale to stage of sale, from activity to activity. Um, this book, Selling to the C-Suite, obviously only captures some of that, um, but there's, there's a lot more that we had. Some of it went into my next book, Target Opportunity Selling. Um, and some of it went into some some coaching um, programs that we do, which it's, it's fascinating. You know, once we got a million minutes of coaching and observation down, we were able to see that a lot of the things that people were telling us are the skills that make successful salespeople aren't. Um, you know, you talk to a lot of HR people and they'll give you a list of competencies as, as long as you're armed. Yeah. But a manager can't coach to that, nor can anybody in the training department. It's just It's just too big. So we wanted to look at, well, what makes the difference? And we found that there's really only 18 things that top salespeople do, uh, but they don't do it all at once because some of those skills aren't relevant, you know, except different stages of the sales cycle. But what we did see in the meetings was this recurring, um, you know, routine that salespeople that did um, these four things of, you know, an introduction, showing their mastery of the customer's issues and implications, um, proposing some solution options, um, and and then moving forward uh, and committing to a movement forward are the ones that actually did have less lag in their funnel. They had less um, dropouts of their funnel and they had a higher yield uh, at the end of it for a lower cost of sale. And, um, and, and that's what we were really looking for. Um, now, when you think of all the things that salespeople need to do and you think of some of the, the catchy 
I guess, methods that have been like thrown out over the last few years. You get things like challenger sale and others. Well, they did a pretty good job of saying you've got to have the courage to challenge the customer's thinking. Well, that's that's where the solution options comes in, but it's only one part of a much bigger dance that you have to do. Uh, what our attempt was to show salespeople, if you want to know the whole dance, here's the whole dance. Don't just focus on a couple of steps because you've only got part of the picture then. I love this. Yeah, something that Mike and I have really enjoyed about this book, Nick, is you're very clear about a couple of things. One around perhaps doing your own marketing, finding your own appointments, solving your own problems. Um, and, you know, Mike and I, we kind of, our, our empirical research is a bit anecdotal, but actually if we'd actually done it, you know, the 40 years of, of meeting salespeople between us, there's a common thread, isn't there, Mike? And that common thread is the ones that are really cutting it and really making the real money, when you interview them, they're always self-generators. And they, the, the, I would say, ninety-five percent of the they, time, they take a hundred percent, hundred percent responsibility for their target. Is what yes. they do. Yes, and if they, and if they get, and if they land and arrive in a business where they turn up on day one and there are no leads, they, they think, okay, not right. They're shell shocked. They just know what to do. They just go, hmm, right. I figured there wouldn't be any. Well, well off we go. You've cracked it, but but you know it goes. I would propose that it goes a little further than that. I would propose that the sorts of salespeople that really can do that are the ones that get involved in a business. Um, the manager will say, "Well, here's here's what your target's going to be," and they say, "No, no, no, son. I'll tell you what my target's going to be because to earn the money that I want, that's not going to be my target." You know, they take yeah. personal responsibility for their own income and they overachieve for the organization because they know what they're about. You know, they're not going to be satisfied yeah. with the capped commission plans or anything that says you can earn, you know, 200000 this year if there's someone that wants to be, you know, cracking a 450k nut, you know. What's really interesting is I was talking to a salesperson the other day, Nick, who uh, rang me for some advice about a job and he was saying, you know, the the marketing material for this business isn't right. The value proposition for the product that they think is the value proposition isn't right. They've not done any benchmarking in terms of the ROI case. Yeah. And I said, look, mate, you just make, just go online, go on Upwork, find a freelancer in Pakistan or the Ukraine and get your own brochures done, make your own value proposition and put it on your expenses. That's right. Oh, I can't do that, he said. But he, he explained that he'd, he'd threatened to do that and his employers had told him there's no way you do that. You don't create any marketing material outside of that which marketing provide you. You don't do any marketing outside that which has been sanctioned by marketing. So what what do you answer to that individual? Now, my personal answer was, well, if that's the case, you've probably got to move. Um, if the proposition's not right and the pitch isn't right and you know it's not right and you can't make any money there, then move on. Um, but you, you know what the true answer is. You know, if you've got a salesperson that does all of that and they blow their number out the water, all will be forgiven. This is exactly what I've been saying. You ask for forgiveness, not permission. All the top guys do. Yeah, because I, I would say marketing, all the top love, guys love, love marketers, but a lot of the people in marketing, when it comes to sales collateral and sales messaging, um, you know, their, their their domain is is you know um, lunches and lattes and uh, breakfast and brochures. Um, and so <laughs> you, you have to have, right. you have, to have that, brand food. You got to have it, right? Any organization would say we've got to have proper branding, we've got to have consistent messaging, and all of that. But when you're dealing with sales and you've got a customer that says we need something and none of the collateral that we can see on your website you know, deals with that, can you get me a paper on this or can you get me a brochure on that or whatever? If a salesperson's not, you know, got their own Adobe Creative Cloud account and they're not photoshopping something up that night to send them the following morning. Or if they're not using Fiverr and just outsourcing it. I mean, Tim Ferriss gave a great Thank book. You. Right? The, the, what was it? The, the four-minute four work, work week. week. You know? Um, and, and so if you're not outsourcing the drudgery stuff um, that you can afford and you can expense back, or even if your company says you can't, if you're making a massive commission, it's part of your opportunity cost of being in the profession, not just saying, oh, but they're not paying me that in a salary. Now, Granted, some salespeople, when they're starting out, they might not have the, the, the money to do that. Um, but if you're not converting some of your commission, if you're blowing it all on fashion or, you know, your next apartment or whatever, and you're not converting some of that money back into the, the sales engine, which is yourself, if you're not investing back into yourself, um, then there's something wrong with your spending. I agree. The amount of people, for example, we know uh, where you'll say to them, well, do you have a LinkedIn sales nav account? Oh, my employees won't pay for it. 
it's 80 pounds a month right yeah exactly you're on a 100k basic and it's 80 quid a month just right. go out and get an account yeah yeah but we've you know read I mean? a generation of salespeople that expect to be led by the nose by their sales manager many of those sales managers don't actually know you know because they if, if they're old in the tooth they grew up in a world that doesn't exist anymore so some of them are bewildered by how selling is done today and and if they did grow up in that digital native world um then they're, they're sometimes part of the problem because they've been spoon-fed for too long and so you know there's a real opportunity for salespeople to say you know what I'm going to take this market on. I want all of it. I don't I don't just want 3% of the market. I want all of it. How can I do that myself um, and make everyone else irrelevant? That's the sort of moxie um, that, that top salespeople have. It doesn't mean they're going to get all of it, um, but it's the attitude that they go out with. If you think you're going to get all of it and you get half of it, you've done all right. You've done very well, you know, and there yeah. are some people that blow their number out of the water nobody knows how they've done it but it's attitude first you know it's it's saying i believe in my product i don't expect my company to do everything for me i just expect them to get me into the game and i'll do the rest coach you know and they yeah. take that personal responsibility for making it rain and um you know at, at this stage of the profession i mean we've we've got like 60 years of books and training courses and all this knowledge that's, that's been shared. I just, you know, I just think we need to distill it down a little bit and say, this is what absolutely works, you know? So let's just do this. Let, let's agree on a set of texts to say, this is how to do it. Um, yeah. let's, let's just do something instead of waiting for others to do it for us. And I don't think there's any excuse for salespeople to say, well, I don't have the materials uh, or the guidance because there's plenty of it out there and there's plenty of good people who have ingenious ideas on how to sell better um, that are, you know, have a platform. Yeah. So, Nick, you mentioned the word attitude, which is a segue into, for me, I think the biggest elephant in the room question about the book and selling at sea level in general. And Michael and I debated this quite a bit last week. Mm. I think that some people are sea level players and some people are not. And some, and I think that there is a much wider question around socio-demographics, education, enculturation. And then there is a bridge that takes some people who are perhaps not socio-demographically and educationally gifted, where they make a personal life decision that they're going to become so, and they do. But I also think that most people aren't naturally C-level players and if I, i'm you know I, I look at the people i know who are truly c-level executives in large businesses and people i've hung around with there is a vernacular there is a socio-cultural thing and some people just aren't part of that universe and will never be and no matter what you do with them they'll always struggle some people won't some people will elevate themselves but i think that the, the challenge is some people will just never quite get how to move in those circles. That's right. Not everybody has native intelligence or emotional intelligence. Um, you, you, can't, you can't teach intelligence. Um, you can't teach ethics. You can't teach curiosity. You can tell people it would be great if you, if you had more of it. But it comes down to people's, you know, personal agency, whether they want to yeah. change. Um, we can skill people up. Um, to make the best of what they bring to the table. Um, but I think, you know, we see salespeople who they're a bit lazy. Um, they are happy with their base. If they make a commission, that's a bonus. They don't expect to have to live off of that. And so they just plod along. And you get a lot of order takers uh, who get lucky, and it's a, it's a numbers game. Um, but they're, you're right. They operate very differently to the people who don't take orders. They make orders. Um, yeah. Is it about socioeconomic background? I, I don't think I could subscribe to that because when we were doing the research, um, we we took stuff from the bazaars of Morocco, you know, to the, right. the markets of Shanghai, to the boardrooms of Manhattan, to, you know, Fleet Street, everywhere. And and, and we, we took a, a very strong cross-section because we didn't want anybody to say, yeah, that's okay over there in America, but it doesn't work that way here in Korea or, you know, here in Japan. So we were very careful. Um, that's why the research took so long uh, to make sure that we have had all that covered. And, and we found C-suite players 
um, from from all walks of life in all cultures. Um, some of them had degrees, some of them didn't. Some of them came from privileged backgrounds, some of them didn't. So I don't think that attitude, um, you know, come, comes from nurture. Uh, I, I think it comes from nature, and you, you find that on both sides of the tracks. Is that a fair oh. comment? Yeah, I do. Yeah. What do you think, Mike? Uh, we, we could spend ages on this. I've got a little socialist soapbox, really, that uh, uh, I don't actually agree with With that. I think, I, I tell you what it is, and I covered it really earlier on, which is the phrase in England is you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink, right? You could take somebody out of the least privileged background in England, whatever that might be, or the least privileged background in Australia, whatever it might be, and actually, if they had enough motivation and determination and they followed this, they would succeed. Yeah. But there comes a point of comfort or courage, as you said earlier, Nick, where people just aren't willing, don't have the courage, whatever it might be, don't do it. Now, actually, I think people from privileged backgrounds are more used to seeing people succeed than people from less privileged backgrounds who are more used to seeing seeing people fail. So I bet if we got the straw poll out of C-level execs in the FTSE 250, I don't know the exact answers, but I suspect most of them would be white uh, men who've been to public school. And actually, I suspect if we got most of the people who sold to those people, the demographic would would be reflective Would be not dissimilar. I think it'd be reflective of it. I don't know it. But... I wish it wasn't. I wish it wasn't, yeah. But for sure, if somebody has the courage, it's not intelligence, because I don't necessarily agree with intelligence either, really. I think if somebody has the courage and conviction to follow this process, or there are others available, let's yes. be clear, to follow this process and actually was brave enough to do it, then they could do it. Agreed. Walking into, you know, I know some fairly rich people, I guess, and, you know, that as Jonathan says, they have a different way of communicating. There's a different social etiquette. Different worldview. reference to literature. Yeah. All that stuff that people from less privileged backgrounds will not be exposed to. But... Actually, most of the C-level execs that I've ever met are bright, intelligent, and quite often kind people. Yes. And actually, if somebody had the courage to do it, they would be accepted, I think. Well, that's my socialist standpoint. Finished, actually. Yeah. And I'll get back to the book now. Right. You were going to say something there, Nick. I can see yeah, it in your we'll face. We'll have a line behind the, the privileged background of those who become CEOs and those who sell to the CEOs, which I believe can come from anywhere um, based on what we see from the data. If they put one foot in front of the other and you know, do, do what makes sense. Um, I, I also think, though, what supports your view is, 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 is their, their hunger. Um, because, for instance, if the biggest purchase that somebody's ever made is a, say, a £250,000 apartment somewhere, um, then for them to think that they could earn over £250,000 a year yeah. can be a massive limit because, you know, there's this huge be-all and end-all number that's so far out of you know, they're reaching their parents spent 40 years paying off their house and, and they think, oh, I could never earn that much. And they have these self-limiting beliefs. Um, and so I, I think that there's there's a belief system that's in place as well, that salespeople who have the hunger, have the belief and, and the attitude to do it, um, they can they can get there um, compared to those who may come from a privileged background who aren't particularly hungry. And so you have to ask, well, what's their motivation for doing it? Is it ego to be at, you know on, on the top of the the leaderboard all of the time, or are they you know do they really need the money? You know, I, I think I, I'd rather have a hungry rep um, who's got some moxie and uh, and some ambition um, than somebody who came from the right side of the tracks who might not necessarily uh, you know be that way. You know what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. We're, we're, border, we're bordering into a social debate. <laughs> <laughs> England, given our two political passes, is poor timing. I yeah, you get, you know, paid announcement on behalf of. Uh... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm going to take you back to your book, Nick. So, right. page 151. This is about value proposition, and I'm not going to read it out. It's too long yeah. to read it out, really. But, uh, but the sort of second half of that page, you have put together a sentence which. You want to do Z, we can deliver it at a cost of Y, and it goes on. I think that's one of the best uh, paragraphs in the book. Yeah, Mike and I absolutely loved that to bits. I think if somebody well, used that, that would be great. But, but you know what that is? It's, it's just a logic flow, isn't it? Yeah. You know, 
it's, it's saying, you know, I've, I've spent the time understanding your business. Here's what you're trying to do, guys. Here's what's stopping you from doing it. If we did this and this and this, this is going to be the outcome. What do you think? Shall we, shall we get started in the following ways? And so the, the top performers who sell to executives, they put forward these very cogent but very simple um, arguments um, way up front. You know, and, and this is this is why it's so important not to wait for an RFP to hit your desk uh, is, is because, you know, you, you can look at what your um, products and solutions do for companies, find the sorts of people that are likely to have the problem that that solution solves. And whether they're looking or not, go and talk to them about how you can re-engineer their world and, uh, and, and make their business um, better. Um, they're either going to be interested and they'll accelerate a decision that they weren't thinking about making and entertain it and move forward with that. Or they'll say, um, not now, let's, let's talk in a few years. Or they'll say, actually, it's interesting you should say that because we've just been talking about that very thing internally. You know, you've you got to try your luck. Um, but I think if, if people put things in very simple terms for customers early enough, they can set the bench uh, they can drive the discussion. They can create opportunity where it didn't exist before. And even if it does go to competitive review, 92% um, of the time, if you're the one that set the bar, you end up winning. Yeah. So uh, I think that you, you're spot on. Something that you said later on in the book where you talked about loyalty. Hmm. And there was a couple of questions I, I wanted to ask you. One is, and Mike and I often debate this when we talk about our own accounts, is do we sell to the company or do we sell to the person? And because we have a different opinion on it, Jonathan. Now. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a. I like to think that you can win an account, but actually, often when we, you know, often sometimes we'll have a relationship with a very senior decision maker who is where we're doing really well. One morning we wake up and that individual has gone, and we in reality lose that account. But where sometimes where Michael does very, very well is he has loyalty with those individuals and he works with them throughout their careers. Mm. Whereas sometimes I try and get a little bit stickier inside the company so that I insulate myself against the individual getting headhunted one morning to go and work at Amazon Web Services, um, which is where everybody seems to be going to work right yeah. now. Um, so and it's a debate. We have it all the time. Do we sell to the individual or do we sell to the to the organization? Who's really the customer? Well, I think you've got to look at who's paying the bills and where does corporate memory reside? And I think you'll get two different answers for that. Who's paying the bills is the budgets of the departments or the organization that you're selling to. They're, they're, they're the name on the contract. Um, but uh, where does corporate memory reside? I think you find that when people leave the organization, corporate memory goes with them, and that's where loyalty resides, right, in, in the, the, yeah. the relationships. Now, you might still have a contract to fulfill, which means you've got some long tail, um, you know, if you sold a multi-year contract into an account. So if your, 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 your hot contact leaves during that time, you've still got some revenue assurance uh, that the revenue is going to come in. Um, but if somebody else then takes that role and they have a penchant for your competitor, um, it's quite hard. And you'll find that what was a key account suddenly gets downgraded to a mid-level account. Um, so you, yeah. you've got to, and, and this is where, uh, you know, too many salespeople don't, don't prospect enough after they've won an account. They think, oh, I've just got to farm this with the two people that I've, I've met. And uh, you've really got to go broad in an organization to inoculate yourself against getting the ejector seat if one of your key contacts goes. You've got to get other contacts across the account. And the yeah. higher they are, um, you know, the, the thing about this, this book, Selling to the C-Suite, is we make the point early in the book, um, it's about selling to the highest relevant level executive. So it might not yeah. always be the CEO or the managing director. Oh, it God, might no. be who's mid-level, but that's as high as the decision ever goes. And they're the people who are willing to experiment a little bit more and take a few more risks. It's not their money. It's not their reputation. The higher up the pyramid you go, the narrower it gets, uh, the closer they are to the edges. If, if something goes wrong, they're going to spin out. But right in the middle structure there, in the mid-management, you've got a whole lot of leeway um, in, in the organization politically uh, for them to, um, to try things, and, and be able to recover if it doesn't work, but also get upward movement if it does work. And that's that's the sort of target you want to be going after, people with ambition inside the account who've got um, upward movement or lateral movement in their career path. Um, at the very, very top, um, you don't have that. So they oversee, you know, I think as you guys pointed out, they initiate the ideas, they check that the you know, procurement program is going to deliver the result, but they let everybody else sort of deal with that in, in between in the sales process. 
Um, so, you know, dealing with mid-management might be the highest relevant level um, yeah. that you need to get to. And I think salespeople need to think, I don't always have to sell to the top. Sometimes it's it's the most irrelevant thing that you can do. But but knowing where the decision resides, whose budget is being plumbed for it, and who's likely to influence that decision, and also who's likely to try and defend the previous decision if it was with a, a competitor, because they're not going to want to see their decision undone. Um, understanding the political dynamic of that um, is a key thing. And you know, that's that's emotional intelligence that people need to be able to read the tea leaves on that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And is it the salesman's job to build loyalty or is it the supplier's job to build a, and I'm going to use the word solution, a solution that's sticky? It's everybody's job. Um, too, too many salespeople promise what they were told in basic training their organization delivers. And so in good faith, they make those promises. And then the delivery team lets them down and puts the egg on everybody's faces. Um, if the delivery team delivers exactly what was promised, and if the account manager then circles back to make sure the customer's happy with what was delivered and gets credit for that good work and gets a good testimonial out of it, which too few have the courage to do, um, then you know everybody would see that ev everybody's business is the customer. Um, you know, um, but I think that whoever inherits the account manager role, you know, as the ringleader of that circus, they need to take personal responsibility for saying the buck actually stops with me. But they have to be empowered to influence all of the other de delivery um, you know, departments inside that business. Yeah, I mean, Mike and I have seen recently the rise of almost a new function in a lot of technology companies, which is the customer success uh, yeah. role, where yeah. it's actually true account management. I think mm -hmm. you mentioned it somewhere in the book, the difference between yeah. being... Uh, are you an account manager actually in reality you're a new business sales guy with a small portfolio of accounts or are you actually an account manager account manager and the customer success role mm. i think has really been born of the fact that a lot of our a lot of the suppliers out there now are on month on month contracts and the days of three and five year deals are over so you're only as good as your customer success level yeah. um and that that's making a really big difference isn't it in a lot of organizations i think so i think it's a good thing i'll tell you what one other part i like about the book um is i think the and, I, and i'm amazed i'm saying this i'm going to sound like a proper sales boffing geek here no we both love this I thought the we, appendixes are absolutely excellent well they're useful they're really mm. really I'm useful example i'm on a page i'm flicking through it examples of information you should know before first meeting i can tell you now Nine-tenths of people will not know that. Literally, well, Most people don't do a call, Brett. Initial I... telephone, call planner. Nine-tenths of people won't do that. No. Sales opportunity profile. Nine-tenths of people won't do that. Business issues worksheet. Roadblock worksheet. And actually, I think it makes it... A, it's a hard book to, to uh, listen to on audio. You actually need to have the book in your hand. I notice yeah. it's not on audio. Is that why? Uh, it's, it's on MP3 and CD. Uh, I don't think the publisher put it on Audible yet. Uh, or Spotify. I, see why. I, I don't think it should be on Audible. I think it should well, be. Well, you'd have to put all the appendices into a PDF. You? Yeah, I think it should be as is, really. I think it's really good. that. And, and, you know, I'm normally quite polite to the authors and say I'll use some of the stuff and never do. I'm actually going to use some of this stuff. I actually. used some of it the other week. Yeah, yeah. I, I used some of it good. last week. Uh, the, the value proposition thing, uh, I incorporated it into an email I was sending to a customer. Actually, I had a rep. I had a rep recently, um, they, they're on one of my selling to the C-suite training classes. And the morning of the workshop, they got a note on their email that um, one of the big credit card companies, which was their account, uh, was about to cancel their, their, their business after years with them. And uh, she couldn't focus, you know, on, on the course. And I, I said to her, I'll make your promise. Just focus on what we're doing here. We're going to be going through the first few chapters of this and some of the appendix materials for the first half day. If you can resist the urge of firefighting for half a day, I promise you that there's something here that you can use that will help. Um, I had her attention for half a day, then she vanished from the class and uh, I didn't see her for the rest of for, for the for day two. She sent me an email the following week and she said, I saved the account because what I heard and what I saw in that first part was so like groundbreaking. She, she said, I realized that I was just being a plotter. I, I hadn't added any value. I didn't actually know what, what the customer's business was really all about. I kind of knew it, but I didn't know what made this person tick. So I spent the rest of that day thinking, what could I say? You know, and going through Google to look at, you know, all the latest trends and anything that she could catch is some sound bites. She went in there the following morning for breakfast and um, 
And the guy said, well, the decision's been made, but she turned it around because she was applying just the basic things and some of those appendix materials uh, in the book. Um, right. And not only did she, she save it, she increased um, the account value. And, and I just think that the people saying you know, to themselves, it's not just a book I'm reading, it's not just training I'm going on, this is something that can change the way that I operate. It's, it's part of my personal operating system. I'm doing an, an upgrade, if you like. And if they just have the courage and the vision to take on one or two more new ideas, and I know that that's a hackneyed phrase. Oh, if you go to training and only take one or two things out of it, which I, I think is a bit of a cop-out. But, but genuinely, I've learned over the years that most people apply nothing new. So if they do... Yes. Yeah, if they do it's something, if they right. make that part of their new operating system, their personal operating system, and then take two more ideas and adopt that and test it, prove if it works or if it doesn't. But when it does work, just stick with it and uh, and, and they'll do well. But what I just heard you guys say in, in pointing everybody to the appendixes is, uh, is similar to what you said in one of your other podcasts. People don't need to read the chapters. They could just read the summaries at the back. So <laughs> Probably just reduced the book to about 20 pages. Well done. <laughs> You're welcome. It's still worth, but it's worth the purchase for the appendices. Thank you. Yeah, it is. Well, Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've been great value. Thanks for allowing us to talk about the book on the show. We've enjoyed it, actually. Um, there's hardly been a thing, really, where we've sort of got, we've had other books where we've really ripped in, and there's hardly been a thing, really. You know, I didn't like you talk about selling to the gatekeepers, but other than that, um, yeah, it's yeah, been it's great. It's really been emotional, cool. as they say on Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. Well, you, you didn't like the emphasis on China either, did you? Um, I didn't, and and I know you wanted to mention it, so let's discuss it. My only issue is um, I'm never going to sell to China, and I don't think many of my candidates will. So I kind of skirted over the mentions that you made. But if you if there is a reason why, and we always find out something when we've got the author on the show, do tell us now. I decided years ago to follow the wave of globalization. So I went and lived in Germany just after the Berlin Wall fell. And um, wow. with, with Eastern European countries, there's Western companies trying to integrate and create their channels there. And then when China entered the World Trade Organization, I packed the family up into our suitcases and we went and lived in Shanghai because um, I wanted to see the same thing from the ground. Um, that's where I do my, my best research and, and consulting is right, right there where the action's happening. And um, one time there was this communist party card carrying member who was one of the VPs of Shanghai Telecom. And uh, he got uh, drunk on his Johnny Walker blue uh, too much at his, at his country you know, house. And uh, he started opening up to me. He says, you know, uh, you better teach your kids to, uh, to learn Chinese because we're going to own everything one day. And I said, ah, oh, yes, Chen, I'm sure that's right. He said, no, no, really. He said, we've got a four point plan and we're halfway through it. And to cut a long story short, it was open up its borders, tell companies you can trade here for a million dollar license, take all of that money, um, have all of our Chinese uh, you know, workers learn in their new factories, their Western processes, then open up a factory down the road to produce almost exactly the same product using yeah. Western, but do it cheaper and prove on the China mainland that we can become number one or two brand, even when Western competitors with all of their marketing and all of their experience are, are, are pushing hard. And then once we've proven that we can do that, we'll take that global um, by pushing up our own brand products out into the world and at the same time to make sure that people don't think made in China is, is cheap and nasty, um, we're going to buy um, more Western brands than we can possibly ever create with the war chest that we've created over that 20-year period. And so, you know, people say, say, well, you know, I know Huawei is a Chinese company or, you know, they, they might be familiar with a number of them, but they'd probably be surprised to know that China owns companies or groups like Aston Villa, House of Fraser, Harvey yeah. Nichols, Jeeves and Hawks shirts from Savile Row, um, Hamley's Toy Store in Regent Street, Superdrug, Hoover, Weetabix, Club Med, um, GE Appliances, Volvo, Motorola, you know. And so what, what Chen told me, you know, in those years, um, we, we thought that that was something that was quite precious, which is why we spent a little bit of time in the book saying, here's how the Chinese look at relationships. Here's how the Chinese look at loyalty. And it's something called Guanji, which is you scratch my back, I scratch yours. You create value for me, I'll find a way of creating value for you. Now, I'm not saying that everybody's going to end up working for or trading with Chinese partners. But with the rise of social media 
and social platforms. It very much is a, a, an environment now where it's very fueled by personal opinion because everybody's their own publisher, editor, and soapbox these days. And yep. so there's something quite, I think, quite raw and quite, you know, culturally um, homogenized now for the whole world. If we can learn something from the way that the Chinese do business and the way that they manage relationships, because influencing um, is absolutely the way to the C-suite. Um, and so we put that in the book, knowing that it might not have been relevant back when the book came out, um, but we knew that it was going to become more and more relevant as time goes by. And I think history has proven that to be uh, to be spot on. It has. I wonder if they're just getting to the end of that cycle. As I noticed in The Economist this morning, they, um, uh, I think, at the lowest growth for about 20 years on the most recent figures. Uh, yep. they're, they're, they've had a bit of a rough time as a result of the tariffs and the trade war with Donald Trump. But uh, the st well, it's still an incredibly powerful economy. So I'm glad you clarified why you'd put it in there. Yeah, they don't work in, work, work in quarterly cycles. They, they plan in, uh, in, in decades, um, you know, just broad brushstrokes. But, um, but they certainly have five-year plans. And most salespeople uh, I know um, couldn't put a five-year forecast together for their key accounts. Um, so, you know, I think there's, there's something to be gained by thinking, well, how can I smooth out the peaks and troughs in my performance? by thinking longer term and going, you know, going for it that way. Anyway, um, it's been a pleasure, chaps. Um, and I it's hope, been that, great. Um, hope people get something from this. Right, Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show. And Nick, you get a chance to do a quick plug for your consulting and sales training business for our listeners. Quick pitch. The website, Sales Labs, with an S at the end, saleslabs.com um, is where I live. And uh, we do research-based consulting. Um, skills coaching, selling to the C-suite, sales management training for new sales managers so they can learn how to do it properly. And, um, uh, you know, I've been doing this now for, for 25 years in 50 countries. And so far, the clients that bother to send us audited results of what deals their sales reps closed as a result of trying these skills and methods, um, it's tracking northwards of 30 billion US now. Wow. Um, so um, I'd, I'd like to think that what we do actually moves the needle. And typically we work with um, small sales teams um, if, if that's the audience. Um, but uh, we also work with global deployments and have been involved in some of the major um, shifts of, uh, of, of productivity in some of the, the, the bigger names, mostly IT, some finance companies. I find that where IT was, say, 10 years ago, where a lot of other industries are now in terms of their need to sharpen up their sales organizations. IT's led the way because it's had the, the funds to and the, and the vision to, but everything that we went through in IT, you know, sort of 10 years ago, everyone else is facing now. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a great time to be uh, in the sales profession. And it's a great time to be in the sales consulting space. Great. Cool. Nick, thanks for coming on the show. Lovely to see you today. Thank you, Nick. Thanks, guys. Cheers.